Good morning, and welcome to episode 384 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. Uh, today we're talking about the Mets. Um, so we've got with us Will Woods, who is a contributor to Baseball Prospectus and who wrote um, the Mets chapter for the annual this year. After we talk to Will, Nick will talk to Mark Carrig from Newsday, another writer that we like a lot. So would highly encourage you to um, to just skip us and just go straight to that. <laughs> In the meantime, we will be keeping ourselves busy talking to Will. Will, how are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, Will, I um, I get most of my baseball knowledge from sort of gauging the general tone with which fans bemoan their lot. Um, and the Mets fans bemoaning their lot seem to um, be not so bemoany lately. They, they seem – I feel like there's this sort of sense of, of optimism that they are maybe something of an underrated team, that they might be on the cusp – the Mets themselves seemed to feel that way enough to go spend money on a bunch of free agents this winter, and yet we're talking to you uh, on the fifth day of this series, which means that Pakoda absolutely disagrees and thinks that the Mets are terrible. Uh, can you explain this uh, apparent contrast? Uh, I can try. I think uh, on the one hand, I agree with you. The I'm, I'm surprised we're having this conversation so early in the series. Uh, I do think the Mets are quite a bit underrated, and I see that Dakota has them at 73 wins currently, and I think they'll do uh, noticeably better than that. However, uh, the optimism thing, you know, is it optimism or is it just an improvement from the pessimism of before? I'm not totally sure. I think the difference between now and, say, five years ago, ten years ago, is that, you know, before we knew what the ground rules were. We knew that they were a big market team. We knew that they had a lot of money and we knew that they weren't doing a very good job of spending it. Today, we have absolutely no idea how much money is available. So we don't know what the ground rules are. We don't know by what rules these guys are playing. We don't even really know if Sandy Alderson is the de facto general manager or if it's some elusive you know, body at JP Morgan Chase that's uh, deciding Curtis Granderson absolutely has to be in the outfield. So uh, we don't know what the ground rules are. The team does appear to be slightly underrated, but maybe it's just because maybe the optimism is just because they're doing better than the absolutely horrifically run team that we've come to know over the past few years. Can you can you just real quickly explain just for people who aren't totally up to date on the business side of the team, uh, what you mean by J.P. Morgan Chase might be pulling the strings? I can do a I can do a layman's job of explaining it. I think uh, Emma Spann detailed it quite well in her essay for the annual. Um, basically, the team has taken out a loan with J.P. Morgan Chase to continue operating the club. And in my cynical view, you know, I take that to mean literally making payroll uh, on and off the field. The, the uh, Madoff scandal basically racked the, uh, basically totally, you know, screwed the Wilpons. And uh, they've got no money, apparently. No money of their own, anyway. And uh, the team appears to be running at least partially on money from from J.P. Morgan. So how much? We're not sure. And that's what I mean when I say that we don't know what the ground rules are. And so far as we know, though, probably if they if they give $60 million to a player, presumably that has to be cleared uh, by uh, the people who they owe hundreds of millions of dollars to. Presumably. But again, mums. Presumably. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so all this is all speculation, but yeah, presumably. So did you see the signings of this offseason as more of a, a gesture after, after a winter when they spent almost no money last year and people questioned whether they ever would? And Sandy Alderson has at various times uh, mentioned certain payroll targets that the Mets didn't end up meeting. So was this just a matter of having to spend some money and picking out some players who they could spend it on? Or was there some kind of coherent plan for the future in these signings? Well, well, you know, I had I had two parents who worked on Wall Street, and I'm pretty confident in saying that these people don't just make gestures. They're not really in the business of making of just extending olive branches to fan bases. Uh, but I th- so I think what this is ultimately is a sign that things are getting better, but they're not what you'd call good or stable yet. Uh, the Granderson signing is to me the the signing that makes you think it's that things are better. But the Chris Young signing and the Bartolo Colon signings appear to be, you know, trade bait basically because these players, in the case of Young, he's either going to make a return to, you know, being a close to all-star player. If that happens, they will trade him probably because he'll have priced himself out of the Mets market, you would think. And Cologne, same, you know, same thing. If he continues to pitch well and they're and they see an opportunity, they'll probably use him to restock the farm system. So a little of both, I guess you could say. So uh, what are you looking forward to, to watching on the individual player level this year, other than, than baseball's best looking backup catcher, uh, who you and I, you and I share an admiration well. for, um, who, who do you think will be the, the player that will, uh, I don't know, capture Mets fans minds this season, if, if not to the extent that, that Harvey did last year, um, you know, to some extent at least. Well, I'm not just going to leave that Anthony record comment alone. First of all, <laughs> that's a, okay. Uh, yeah, he's mandatory uh, day game after night game viewing material. So uh, <laughs> anyway, With you, um, I think I think if there's one player that Mets fans are should be should be focused on or excited about this year, I think it's probably the debut of Noah Syndergaard. If he if his changeup comes along and he makes the progress against lefties at AAA that he's supposed to, then come you know around the All Star break or so. They're going to bring him up. They're going to give him a shot, and all the buzz is going to keep going, just because of what Harvey did last season. And then to boot, I think you'll get the same sort of buzz about Zach Wheeler, who made such strides with the breaking ball in the second half of the season. That I think, you know, it all comes down to basically what Harvey did is going to set unrealistic expectations, and so that's where the New York media mill is going to get running about those two guys, basically. Mm-hmm. So I think those are probably the two guys personally I'm most excited to see. I'm actually a, like a little surprised that Mets fans can still get excited about pitching prospects. I would have thought that, um, you know, Generation K would have oh, been one of those things that, that Sam. Nobody. I, well, I would have. Who, who even are those people? I would have guessed like I would have guessed maybe 40 years before anything could grow on that land, but <laughs> apparently it's less than that. <laughs> oh, Sam, when when Generation K was coming up, I was eight years old, and there's now and there was there's now a bail bondsman. Uh, where that stadium used to be. So I, <laughs> no, nobody remembers Jason Isringhausen and Bill Paulson. <laughs> Isn't Jason Isringhausen your setup man this year? <laughs> hey, uh, 
No, that's uh, no. Tim Erdak and maybe yeah. Frank Francisco or so. I don't know. <laughs> Kyle Farnsworth. Oh, God, yeah. He will be. Yeah, that might actually happen. Um, what about uh, Josh Satin and, and Juan Lagares? Because they, they seemed sort of like surprises last year. I, they were not on my radar or really anyone's radar before the season, uh, but they were pleasant surprises at least. Uh, yeah, one by one, Satin was not on anyone's radar. I think that's definitely the truth. But he has hit everywhere he's been. And just to borrow from my comment in the annual, I think basically the the problem with Satin is that like a lot of the Mets, a lot like a lot of the players the Mets have brought up, he's got a really nice hit tool. He will hit probably, but he won't hit for quite enough power to compensate for the fact that he has absolutely no position. He could maybe play a you know, slightly substandard third base. But again, that's problematic because the Mets have one good offensive player and there he is. So I think Satin could be a third baseman on a decent team. No, half decent team, maybe. But it's going to be an issue finding a fit for him. And you're already reading stories about Satin playing left field, which is just, you know, going to be an absolute circus out there. It's going to be Duda and Murphy all over again. So, and then in the case of Ligaris, uh, you know, two years ago, the Mets thought this guy was a corner outfielder. I mean, what does that say? That he comes up and plays all world center field and he wasn't even he wasn't even a center field candidate in double A ball. So what he's done, I think, is taken everybody by surprise. If the bat comes down around even at all, they've got themselves an everyday center fielder. And that's gonna, you know, complicate things further, I think, in the Mets outfield. They gotta sort that out in, in March. Uh, I'm so, curious about, jeez, uh, Ben, you and me today, not doing well. On the chemistry not doing between well. you guys. At, what is this, 384? <laughs> okay. We're still uh, working on it. <laughs> yeah, well, I let me, can I just interrupt? I, I just would like to follow up on Ligaris. Um, sure. Because you mentioned his all-world defense, and according to baseball reference, I mean, if you prorate his 120 games out to a full season, he challenges for the best defensive season in history. And so I wanted to know how realistic that was uh you you watched him you had the eyes on him and I'm, I'm curious what it looked like and as far as his bat um you know you sort of alluded to this when you mentioned that they had him as a corner outfielder in the minors his bat was you know it wasn't a it wasn't a huge impact bat but he hit enough to play corner outfield and uh, is there anything in his approach that just looks like it won't play in the majors that you know like that he is a high a creation at the plate and that bat's never coming around or is it you know, more likely that he settles in as like a 700 OPS guy and, and carries, you know, just enough to, for the club to, to shine. Uh, I think the latter, what you said is, is probably going to be the case with him. I thought he looked overmatched, not alarmingly so, but to the point where, you know, I think we have, I think we all have legitimate real concerns that he won't be able to hit enough that he'll be like a Peter Borges type uh, defensively though, he's the real deal. He doesn't cheat. You know, he doesn't, he's not Carlos Beltran out there where he's playing with his backside up against the center field fence, trying to rob home runs. He's out there cutting off balls, you know, they're hit shallow. And then his pursuit is just ridiculous. So I think he's, yeah, the numbers are totally bearing out the empirical evidence in that, in that case. Uh, I do have real concerns about the bat though. As uh, a former D3 catcher and oh quality clubhouse guy uh what do you see out of travis darno uh well i'm very pessimistic about darno in fact i think you know the fact that he's injury prone all that really says to me is that 
he is, you know, not going to be a decade long engagement back there at catcher. And I wrote in the annual that he's going to be the best Mets catcher since Mike Piazza. But that just means he's got to be better than Paul LaDuca. So I think he can do that at least for a while. Uh, low bar as that may be. But the problem with Darno is that he got injured, broke his foot early last season, then comes up, makes his big league debut, and really shows none of the power in his swing that we had been told existed. He's generating very little torque from his lower body. I just had a lot of concerns scouting-wise about him. And I'm, as far as spring training goes, I think he would be the one offensive player that, that needs to be watched. More so even than Ike Davis. Sorry. <laughs> well, you and I go back a ways, uh, and so I, I still recall that you predicted a bust from Alex Escobar oh. after <laughs> after looking at him once <laughs> when he was a top twenty prospect at the time. Yeah, so, and by the way, he <laughs> by the way he homered in that game, and then I and then I proclaimed <laughs> that he would be horrible. Yeah, Lo so and behold, I I, I I possibly put too much weight on that one correct call, um, <laughs> <laughs> but. But uh, it has achieved this sort of mythical status for me. So keep in mind, I had Alex Ochoa too. Okay, <laughs> that's right. And are you Husky. sure? Are you sure this wasn't 2006 that you made this prediction? <laughs> no, Ben was there. Ben I was, was there. there. I I shouted it as loud as I possibly could. <laughs> oh, and last thing's Millage. So the list goes on, folks. <laughs> um, and another player uh, that you didn't have very nice things to say about at one point when uh, you co-hosted effectively Wild. Way back uh, last year, last April, at the time, I think you you called Ike Davis uh, one of the one of the worst ten players in Major League Baseball. Uh, there was a, a strong statement of that sort, and a month and a half later, he was in the minors. Um, after that, he returned, and I wonder whether your opinion changed. Well, I think first of all, that statement is a little unfair to hold me to that statement. <laughs> <laughs> because that that was based on the numbers at the time, which mm-hmm. said he was probably the number one worst player in the major leagues. <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, so, so that's probably where that came from. But uh, Ike made some adjustments. I mean, my whole rant from that podcast way back when was basically that could the guy who can only hit balls middle in not stand roughly 50 feet back from home plate? That would be you know, step one of getting him on track. And he sort of curbed that a little bit, but it's clear that this is a middle in hitter who can't really adjust to the ball away, who somehow feels more comfortable not crowding the plate. And that's something that he's either going to have to get over through coaching, you know, a change of scenery. My point being is not going to help that situation. So Ike Davis, you know, it, it all comes down to the coaching that he receives. I don't think there's, I feel pretty comfortable in saying I don't think there are too many hitters in the league that could benefit more from an actual hitting coach. And we all make fun of these guys and say that they don't do anything. But no player could benefit from an actual hitting coach more than Ike Davis at the big league level. Um, I want to cycle back to um, circle back to Zach Wheeler because he's more interesting than Ike Davis. Um, totally. Uh, agree. Yeah. I mean, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, uh, so I, I feel like when most people quit paying attention to the Mets – Last year, um, Zach Wheeler was not doing so well. And I, I sort of formed my opinion of how his rookie season went um, based on that. He was, you know, very wild and and not altogether effective. Um, but then, you know, in the last month or so, uh, he was considerably better. Um, you mentioned his curveball. There was talk when he was struggling of pitch tipping. Um, and so I wanted to see 
how much you think can be explained away uh, by things that are no longer factors um, and whether he actually looked like a considerably different pitcher at the end uh, of the season compared to at the beginning or if this is just sort of um, you know one of those September runs that pitchers sometimes go on when they're facing eh, teams. I think a lot of it can be explained by the problems he was experiencing when he was brought up and I'm really bullish on on Wheeler because of that. Here are the things that that were affecting Wheeler. The problem was basically twofold. Number one, he was called up to the major leagues for his debut in the midst of a pitch tipping mechanical issue. Just think about that for a second. Couldn't figure that one out in AAA Las Vegas. Then he flies to New York, pitches again. I think it was in Atlanta, actually. And then they discover, oh, well, he got shellacked and he's tipping pitches. So that took three starts to work out. Then the problem was that he was a really a one-pitch pitcher and he couldn't throw that pitch over the plate. Once that all got corrected, he was dynamite. I mean, he's lights out. And it, and it really didn't subside until very late in the season when he, you know, you could say he got a little bit tired, as, as most young guys will. Uh, this year, you know, the sky's the limit. I, I don't think there's any reason he can't do a decent enough Harvey impression to, you know, make us forget about him, make us forget about Harvey, at least till the All-Star break when they're not really contending anymore. Really bullish about, about Wheeler. Uh, okay, and uh, last thing we, before we make you uh, predict, um, I like relievers a lot. Um, they're my favorite thing about baseball. Is there a reliever um, in this bullpen that, is going to be, um, you know, like is going to have super fun stats at the end of the year, and I'll know who he is at the end of the year. Well, if there's one, I hope first of all it's it's appearances for Bobby Parnell and that he's healthy. He's about two weeks away from picking up a baseball, but you don't want to hear about the closer, do you? No, that's not your, that's not your favorite mean, part of the yeah. game. You didn't mean I'm that. Not talking okay. about closers. Uh, I am hoping for consistency from Josh Edgen. They apparently have the corpse of Tim Burdak just sort of wandering around haunting Port St. Lucie. I don't really know if he's a serious contender to make the roster, but Edgen is really the one serious lefty uh, left over from, from last year's team. So I, he has the potential to be more, more than a loogie. He's got a really electric fastball that he brings from, an angle that doesn't really produce fastballs of that velocity. So I think Edgen could be the guy to just put up crazy K numbers. And if he can stay consistent, you know, he could go from resident bullpen lefty to solid eighth inning guy because he's got that kind of stuff. Well, sounds like a great year for Mets fans. <laughs> oh, Josh, is it ever? All that hot Josh Edgen action. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have Anthony Recker to keep me, keep me comfortable. <laughs> All right, so uh, we need your cut, June. Sorry. Yeah, so we need your prediction now. Uh, we need to know how many wins the Mets are gonna get. Okay, so Pakota says seventy-three. They got seventy-four last year. I think this team should be better than last year. I think you know Granderson won't be good when the Mets are good, but he'll be good probably for right now if he doesn't get hurt again. I think this team creeps up towards eighty wins, and I'll say seventy-eight and third place. Because they're better than the Phillies. I don't know why we're talking here now. We should have had the Phillies one before. Does the, does seventy eight? Does that? I mean, to me, at this point in in our in considering what most of us know about baseball and how teams win and lose and how cycles go, it, it seems like there's really nothing more depressing than seventy eight. Like that that might be the number 
um, that most makes you want to quit. Two years ago, I would have agreed with that, except that now we can actually say uh, meaningful mid-August baseball because there are two wild cards. So they'll just uh, keep true. us. They'll just keep us hanging on. Yeah, and right. Then, they're like the like the Brewers and the Phillies last year were. Yeah. Like the, uh, uh, it's like, well, if they win fourteen in a row by the trade deadline, they might be able to add Marlon Bird, kind of a oh, thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh no, we'll to absolutely be sitting here on August twenty second, you know, and the Mets are walking dead, lost five of six, and just <laughs> you know, but they're still seven games out of the second wild card, and oh, God, <laughs> do we really have to keep watching? But yeah, they'll be there, and then things will go to hell, and seventy eight wins. That's my that's my bet. Uh, well done. Um, Mark Krug is coming up, um, and we'll be back tomorrow with another bad team. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm speaking with Mark Krug, the Mets beat writer for Newsday. How's it going, Mark? It's good. Just uh, getting ready to uh, spend the next uh, six weeks in Florida. So uh, you've caught me in the middle of packing actually. So, yeah, you must be excited. Uh, yeah, it'd be good to get away uh, from the ice. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. nice because it's, uh, as you know, it's horrendous up here right now. So, um, you know, I'm all about that. I'd like, love to get out of here for a little bit, uh, um, warm up uh, some because, man, it's been bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So in 2012, the New York Mets won 74 games. And in 2013, the New York Mets won 74 games. We've been going through the season preview series by reverse order of expected standings based on the Dakota depth charts. Those projections are based on individuals' projections for each major league player, along with the expected playing time for each player. And so the 2014 New York Mets are expected to win 74 games. Have the Mets really changed that little, or can we expect something different in 2014? Uh, That's a great question. And, you know, actually when the uh, projections came out, um, that was something that I looked at a little bit just to see, um, you know, what, what the numbers looked like. And, uh, you know, in some ways they haven't changed that much because, you know, they spent a lot of, you know, they not spent but reallocated basically a bunch of dead money and got themselves Curtis Granderson, Bartolo Colon, and Chris Young, which I think uh, in the context of what they bring and, and what they were actually paid, I mean, to me those are those are shrewd gambles. By the Mets, you know, and I use the word gamble pretty loosely here because, you know, two of those three guys uh, in particular have a recent history that shows you they can play. Okay, so, but they still like, you know, in Granderson's case, they got him for less than what you would expect had he not been hurt. Uh, I feel like if Cologne were, you know, not enormous and forty, you know, he would get a lot more than what he got. So, you know, the Mets got these guys, and and you know, they've reallocated some money. Uh, and, and that's a good thing for them because they brought the talent in. However, um, you know, there's holes all over the all over the roster still, and I think that's what these projections show. Um, you know, you look at what they've got at first base between uh, Ike Davis and Lucas Duda. That's just not going to cut it. Um, you know what those numbers are showing, like and those projections, which I, I mean, I think are pretty accurate. You know, if you were to just let me judge it on feel, um, you know, these. Numbers are what you would expect from those guys, and, and from a place like first base, you're going to need more. Um, you know, again, they've got a bullpen that they've got to figure out um, as they move forward, um, and you also have guys in the starting rotation that um, you know are coming off nice seasons, but uh, you know regression seems to be always around the corner. So, uh, and then you add the fact that Matt Harvey's not going to pitch this year. 
And you've got the situation that the Mets face, where they think they've made significant progress in some areas. But on the whole, because of these uh, parts of the roster that are still pretty murky, um, yeah, I think there is a chance that it's just more of the same. Um, you know, you give them credit for doing well with, uh, you know, basically reallocating that dead money. But, um, you know, on, on the whole, it's hard to see, I think, uh, a significant improvement without, you know, them getting some, some good luck, really. You mentioned Granderson and Young as two of their marquee signings this year. Uh, both of those guys are guys who have played in center field in the past, so now they have Granderson, Ligaris, and, and Young all in the outfield. Was this an intent, intentional emphasis Potential emphasis on fielding, maybe with City Field's dimensions in mind, or were Granderson Young simply the players with the right overall talent and risk level that were within New York's price range on the free market? Yeah, I, I think it's more the latter. And I actually asked Sandy Alderson that question um, in December because of uh, the interest that was being showed, and um, you know, and basically. Uh, because of how Juan Lagares, uh, how his skill set seemed to translate immediately when he was uh, out there in center field, and also Eric Young Jr., um, you know, I asked him straight up if, if this was something that, in their research, uh, you know, they decided uh, was important. And I asked that because when you look at their home record last year, uh, they were horrendous at home. They were bad. In fact, they've been terrible at home the last three years. They've got one of the lowest uh, winning percentages for teams in their own home field in, in all of baseball in, in that three-year span. Now, I mean, that's you know obviously being uh, you know just it's three years like uh, just pulling out a number there is pretty arbitrary. But it is still telling that maybe you know there were is an indication there that there's something about the composition of the roster that was hurting him and so when they went into their organizational meetings uh after the season i know this was something that they had talked about now his answer to me when i asked if uh they were looking you know specifically at improving their defense was that you know and their determination the city field itself wasn't unique enough for them to be super specific in their targeting of defensive players so you know, I think in, in this case, this was just a matter of uh, cost per, uh, and benefit um, and fit for the budget. And, you know, in Young's case, that's like a, a one-year flyer that they were comfortable with. And I think, uh, you know, when you look at that uh, contract and you look at what Young's done in the past, I, I don't necessarily think that was a bad idea. And, you know, I think Granderson uh, certainly falls in, a, uh, in that umbrella, too, where uh, they got him at the right price, and he's really a guy that, if he can, uh, you know, get back and, and just play a full season and do what he's done when he's played full seasons, that that would be really big for the lineup. So I, I think it was more a matter of these guys fit and it was the right time, um, as opposed to it being well, these guys have all played center field. Juan Lagares' debut last year was very promising. He was great in center field. He threw out a lot of runners. His defense really seems to have developed faster than anyone had, had anticipated. He was signed as a shortstop and was still getting a feel for center field just a few years ago. Uh, do the Mets think that he's the real deal out there? Yeah, I think defensively they know what they have. I mean, this guy is elite. And I know he's got a huge fan uh, you know, in manager Terry Collins. And uh, I know... The staff raves about the way he goes about his work. Uh, you know, he, they, they've seen the effect um, of, of just him playing better defense out there, which obviously translates 
uh, you know, for the pitching staff. So, I mean, those guys obviously are huge fans of his. So, I mean, it really was a, a night and day difference. Um, I think some of that was uh, before Ligaris, it was, um, you know, Rick Ankiel who had gotten brought in as a sort of this like last resort, um, you know, uh, hole filler basically. And, you know, so when you compare those guys, it's like, it's not even close, you know, Ligaris shows up uh, and he's chasing everything down. He's, uh, throwing guys out, um, you know, he's playing shallow, getting away with it. He's got, you know, for all the physical tools he's got, got you know, he's got a strong arm and he's clearly got enough speed to cover the ground. But, um, you know, he's got great instincts out there. Uh, he just naturally fits. Um, so, yeah, I think defensively they know exactly uh, what they've got. But I think they face a strange dilemma there because for all he brings uh, defensively, uh, you know, they, he really doesn't bring him much offensively. And if you're the Mets, where you've got a black hole at shortstop right now, uh, you're in the National League, so your pitcher's hitting, uh, and then you have a black hole in center field, that's three positions in the batting order you're getting next to nothing. And there were points last year where you could say that about catching. You know, after John Buck's hot start, he really fell off. Uh, when they traded Marlon Bird away, that was a huge drop-off in right field. So, um, you know, this is uh, an interesting quandary here for the Mets. I feel like if they were stronger, uh, one through eight offensively, you would see Lagaris out there or be more likely to see him out there because you could live with that trade-off. But because they don't know what they're going to get out of shortstop and really they don't know what you're gonna get, uh, they're going to get out of first base, uh, I don't know if they can afford to run him out there even with the glove that he brings, just because, I mean, there's so many underperforming positions uh, offensively in the rest of the lineup. So uh, it's a tough spot, you know, if you're Ligaris. Now, you know, I was talking to Paul DePodesta about this last week. The, the one thing they're you know, really encouraged about with Ligaris is that you know, they see, they project improvement from him offensively. Um, you know, not to say he's going to go out there and rake and be that guy, but certainly they can see that maybe this guy ups his offensive output enough to where, okay, you can make that trade-off easily, even with some of the holes uh, that might exist in the other parts of the lineup. But you know, until they see some of that improvement, I think he's caught in this weird place where his playing time might get cut short just because of where he is offensively. You know, It was a tough for him last year, too. He had not enough bats in AAA, I thought, but they got rushed into putting him up here, and it showed for, the, for a lot of... Uh, the time that he was in the major leagues, that he was overmatched for a while. So, uh, you know, if you're the Mets, you hope that Lagaris can just improve enough offensively uh, to be able to, you know, at least trot him out there and, and not feel like you're just giving away uh, that offensive slot. And if he can do that, I think they realize the stuff that he brings defensively and, and how much of an advantage that can be going forward. Yeah, he could become a very valuable piece if he can step up the hitting a little bit. Pakoda projects him to be a 286 on base guy next year, which, as you said, is just a bit below what you really want in the lineup every day. Right. But, like, you know, again, though, that said, let's say, let's say they got a shortstop who could hit that also wasn't a sub-300 guy, okay? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. probably could live with that because it's not like he's playing that defense, you know, in the corners or at second base. He's playing that center field and a big center field on top of, on top of that. So, you know, I think there's certainly an acknowledgement uh, on their part uh, of what he brings on that end, both, you know, just analytically, okay, but also uh, just seeing it every day, you know, and seeing uh, sort of the effect it has on the pitchers. Uh, I know that those guys feel more confident with a guy like that out there. 
So, you know, it's, you can't measure it, but it's there. Um, you feel it. And, you know, and, and it, for Ligaris, fortunately, he's working for people that appreciate it. But again, you know, they're obsessed here with trying to get better offensively. And, you know, again, at 286, it's, it's not going to cut it. Uh, it's just not going to cut it. Travis Darnot had a tough debut season last year. He slugged just 263 in 112 plated appearances. Is the organization still confident in his ability to become a productive hitter despite his rather extensive extensive in injury history? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, you mentioned last year. <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know how much could really be really gained <clears throat> from that look. You know, I mean, I was around it every day, and, and you could see that this is a kid that, you know, I guess, and in, in you can make the comparison to Ligaris. They, they don't. I don't think they had enough at bats, really, before coming up. Yeah. You know, um, I, I just didn't think that they were quite ready. And so, what you saw, offensively, at least for me, like I, I took it with a grain of salt. You know, that's not to say that he's going to go ahead and like, you know, be the hitter that everyone's been projecting, you know, forever about this guy. But um, certainly, I don't know if I can hold. Uh, those at bats against him, uh, hold it against him that he struggled in the at bats that he got last year, simply because uh, with his latest injury he missed some time that he probably needed at AAA just to get the at bats under his belt. So, now I, I think they're still fairly confident about what he can do at the plate. It's just a matter of making sure that you know he's got some. I guess gets lucky and doesn't get hurt again, but also they're just making sure that he gets the at-bats because once he does that, I think they'll have a much clearer picture of what they've actually got, which when you think about it and you look at his stat line, we really haven't seen that clear picture yet. He's been hurt a lot. So um, you know, I know that's something that they're really eager to sort of get a better grasp on as the season begins, obviously, because he you know, made a big investment. He came in the R.A. Dickey trade and if you look at the state of catching around the game, I mean, it, God, it, it, it's horrendous right now. It's thin. So a guy like Darno is is already valuable, but you consider when you consider uh, what's going on with that position or around the rest of the league, he's even more valuable. So yeah, that that's a big, big, big part of what they're hoping to accomplish this year is get a better look at what he actually is. Yeah, that could make a big difference in their lineup. He's just going to be 25 this year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, but the injury thing—that's you know—that's that, a legitimate question, and he's one of these guys that's on the prospect list every year. You know, at some point you've got to transition from that. But you know, I think mostly sometimes guys just don't have a chance to play enough. And and in the case of Darno, I think that's what it is. So for me, you know, just watching it, I I try to you know keep that in the back of my mind that you know these numbers, uh, whatever they are, like uh, this is a guy that was playing out there before he had enough at bats to be ready. For, and he looked it. You know, he looked like he was a little overmatched early on. You know, and he's pressing too. So it was like this combination of things that you would expect. But a full look, I think, would be huge for them. Just even getting a, a decent sense of where he is uh, moving forward. The Mets' top pitching prospect, Noah Syndergaard, started the Futures game last year at City Field, and by the end of the season, he was dominating AAA. Uh, the Mets are entertaining the notion of calling him up early to the majors this year. With Harvey injured, are the Mets more likely to bring him up early with the hopes that he can replace some of Harley's, Harvey's value, or are they going to delay using his service time until they can have both of them in, in the same rotation? I, you know what? I, I can see him following the Zach Wheeler plan, basically coming up sometime in June. So, you know, you keep him down there long enough so that he doesn't qualify, I think, for free agency early. But, 
Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't think they're going to worry about the Super 2 aspect of that. So, I mean, he's a guy that I feel like if he goes out, um, pitches well out of the gate you know, in AAA, in a tough place in Vegas, by the way. If he can do that, I mean, they're certainly going to let him push his way onto the club this year is how I see it. I, I mean, uh, you know, as far as, you know, him having to replace some of Harvey's value, I think that was more the Bartolo Colon signing. I mean, not to say that's a one-for-one one there, obviously, but, uh, you know, the value Colon brings is just as far as being able to throw the innings and uh, do it at a pretty high level. Uh, I think that's probably uh, where they're looking to, you know, I guess, f- fill most of that void, you know, so as opposed to it being a, uh, getting Syndergaard up here as fast as possible. But, you know, to me, that looks like a Wheeler-type situation from last year where he'll certainly have the chance to push himself onto the team, and I wouldn't be shocked if it happened around June, just like Wheeler last year. It'll be interesting to see what Cologne does this year in City Field. It seemed like Oakland was a really good fit for him last year, which was one of his best years in a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really like the signing, uh, honestly. I, I just think, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the park will certainly help. Um, it's like the guy just like keeps doing what he does. And, you know, Derek Jeter says this all the time. You know, people that talk about uh, his age and whatnot, he always says, well, at some point, someone's going to be right. You know, and, and in Cologne's case, at some point, someone's going to be right that he's too old, he's too big, he's out of shape, yada, yada, yada. But give him credit. <laughs> you know, you look at what, he, what he's done, and like, you know, obviously there was a PED suspension in there too, so that's not a completely rosy story. However, um, you know, I just don't think that's enough to like, you know, explain all of his performance. Some of it is the fact that he's an experienced pitcher who's good at what he does. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's it, an intriguing signing, and I think. He'll be big for them too, um, literally and uh, metaphorically. But uh, yeah, no, that's I was a good signing. And, um, you know, it, it will be interesting to see how uh, he'll play at City Field. I, I mean, I certainly don't think it's going to hurt him. That's for sure. It's a spacious place, um, and you know, a guy like that that'll only help. One guy you mentioned before was Zach Wheeler, who had his debut season last year, threw 100 innings, had some trouble with walks, wasn't striking out guys at the same rate as he was in the minors. Do the Mets think that he can start to get back up to that level of high strikeouts? Yeah, I think you know what you saw with Wheeler last year was a kid that was you know pitching the most innings he's ever had in his career, and he was running out of gas near the end of it, basically, and he'd gone through was approaching his his innings cap and uh yeah you know you saw a guy that was still learning also i mean i think he told me one after one of his early starts that uh he was he he marveled at some of the pitches that major league hitters don't swing at that he was able to get in the minor leagues you know like getting guys in triple a to chase a bad slider well that doesn't happen here you know sometimes they'll take that bad slider and gap it in the major leagues well you know Whereas a level a level below that was a swing and miss, so I think some of that was just a combination of being a little bit tired. Uh, you know, he was pushed ment- uh, physically, you know, just as far as the innings he was throwing, but also in learning curve. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I still think they they feel like they've got a guy that can get you know uh, get some swings and misses, miss some bats, all that stuff. They certainly think he's got the stuff for it, and I think. Uh, you know, I think the experience ultimately uh, will do him some good moving forward because I think some of that, I think you saw it you know, in, in, in certain 
uh, games this year where when he had a good feel for the breaking stuff, um, you know, he was really, really tough. And, you know, you saw guys have uncomfortable at-bats against him. So, you know, I, I get the sense that they feel the same way too as far as what Wheeler can bring this year. All right, so I'll ask one more question before I let you finish packing. Uh, <laughs> last year, David Wright re- really reaffirmed his spot at the top of the list of NL third baseman. He improved on his great 2012 by hitting for a bit more power while continuing to do a great job controlling the strike zone, which has really been a saving grace the past few years uh, as his power has been up and down. The only concern for him is that 48-day stretch he missed due to a hamstring injury that occurred in early August. What are the reports on him going to spring training? Are the Mets confident that they can get a full year out of him? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's. Uh, a, it doesn't sound to me anyway that like that's a major concern. Um, you know, injuries happen, and uh, but you know they gave him the extension. I don't know if you can commit that many years and that much money on a guy that you had any deep-seated like uh, concern about regarding injury. So um, you know, like he's. I think the one thing that is always going to be a concern with Wright is the fact that, I mean, you're talking about a guy who played with a broken broken bat or broken back yeah. one year, okay? Like, I mean, they, so, uh, yeah, that part's always going to be scary. And, like, you know, I think even in this case, like, he'd been battling uh, a lower body issue that flared up into this. So there's going to be an element of risk always involved with somebody who plays through everything. Um, but I don't know if it's something that they're, you know, looking at in particular, like, oh, man, this is, like, uh, something you have to worry about all the time. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't get the sense that it's, like, a high-priority issue for them. Um, you know, as long as I think, it, with right, it's always key that the guys on the, on the coaching staff and, and manager, that they're, you know, being vigilant because he is the guy that will just keep playing through things. And if, if you don't rein him in, he's not going to do it himself. So, uh, but aside from that, no, I don't, I don't think it's, an enormous issue for them, you know. That was, uh, um, you know, again, injuries happen. It seemed like it was a pretty uh, bad break for him, and battling through some stuff, trying to play through it. But I think if they're more vigilant, uh, it shouldn't be um, a huge issue for him going forward. Definitely less scary to see a ham inst- hamstring injury than if he had hurt his back again. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. You know, like I mean that. I don't know. It's injuries, of course. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, it's. We want to come up with expl- explanations for them, and I feel like a lot of times that uh, there aren't any meaningful explanations for them. Some of it's just bad luck. Some of it is, you know, in Wright's case, I think that was just trying to play through something you probably should have been trying to play through. So, um, you know, I just think it's always important to have a good coaching staff around to make sure that they're keeping an eye on guys and that they can sense uh, when there's some issue there that needs to be addressed. But I think in Wright's case, it's, it's even more important obviously because of his stature on the team and what he brings but also because of the fact that well, he'll play through anything if you let him and sometimes that might not be uh, to his long-term uh, uh, benefit or for the team's long-term benefit when you really think about it so um, aside from that I, I don't know I, I just don't envision that being like a, a big major thing that they're worried about at this point all right well thanks a lot for coming on the show mark yeah you got it you got it thanks for having me have a good trip down to florida We will try. All right, take care. All right, you too. That was Mark Carrig of Newsday. You can read Mark's articles at newsday.com slash sports or follow him on Twitter at Mark Carrig. Tomorrow I'll be speaking with Brittany Giroli, 
who covers the Baltimore Orioles on MLB.com. Thanks for listening.